Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and this is NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. Today, I want to talk about what it's like to be in your 20s or early 30s right now. Some have described the discontent and disappointment that many young adults are experiencing as a quarter-life crisis. I'll talk about that with two guests in just a moment. But first, I need to take care of some business. Tomorrow is Give to the Max Day. And we want you to know that starting today, the NPR Member Fund will double your donation. And if you're not a member yet, make your first donation to NPR and members who came before you will triple your support. So go ahead, give now at nprnews.org. Well, you've probably heard the term midlife crisis, right? But what the heck is a quarter-life crisis? When I say quarter-life, I'm talking about people in their 20s and early 30s. And when I say crisis, I'm talking about what the years 2020, 2021, and 2022 unleashed. And this feeling, this feeling lost and unfulfilled. These young folks have grown up, but now they're trying to figure out the next steps in life, often while dealing with anxiety and depression. They've lived through the upheaval of the COVID-19 pandemic at a formative stage of life, and they're worried about finances, climate change, and civil rights. I have two guests with me today to talk about quarter-life crisis and how to get through early adulthood. We want to hear from you, too, as we talk about this. Are you a person in your 20s or 30s going through what you would consider a quarter-life crisis? What do you want to change, and how are you building the life you want? If you've experienced a midlife crisis or a quarter-life crisis, how did you get through this period of intense soul-searching? You can call us at 651-227-6000 or call 800-242-2828. You can also tweet me at Angela Davis NPR. We've got two great guests today. On the line, we have Satya Doyle-Bayak. And Satya is a psychotherapist, as well as the author of the book, Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood. The book was published in July, and Satya is joining us now from Portland. Welcome to the program, Satya. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here. We also have on the line Sierra Grandy. Sierra is a volunteer with the National Alliance on Mental Illness here in Minnesota, known as NAMI. And she has facilitated peer support group discussions through NAMI and often speaks publicly on mental health. Satya, welcome back. I'm sorry, Sierra, (laughs) welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me again. Hi. So, uh, you know, first, um, Satya, let, let's talk about what you've been writing about. Uh, many people um, may, you know, have heard the term midlife crisis. Like, I think we have an understanding of what that is. But what do we mean when we say quarter-life crisis? What does that look like? What does it feel like? Well, the work that I do is really intended to sort of broaden an understanding of this first stage of adulthood that I call quarter life. Uh, So the fact that we know so much about midlife, but so little really about these first 20 years of adulthood um, is, is sort of part of the point. You know, we have an epidemic of suffering and soul searching happening in these years between adolescence and midlife and really very little focus on what's going on in that time of life except when there's kind of massive crises. And Mm -hmm. so my work is trying to start drawing a developmental understanding to these years that includes the witnessing of soul and the desire to create a life on an often very fraught planet um, 
with crisis after crisis after crisis, right? Mm -hmm. So the quarter life crisis is a more popular term that has really been floating around for for decades now, but it kind of shows up periodically when the attention is drawn to what's going on for young adults or for people I call quarter lifers. Uh, And the crisis can take all sorts of forms from deep anxiety and depression to really deep questions of survival, um, both survival from a mental health perspective, but also from an economic perspective. So it's a huge conversation. Again, I'm excited mm-hmm. to be having it with you. And so as we think about what's happening uh, in what you call the, the first stage of adulthood, prior to this point, um, I mean, you kind of have been going through all these these plans and these steps. You know, you go from uh, ninth grade to 10th grade, and then maybe you go from high school <laughs> to college or high school into training. And it, it's like there's a plan laid out for you. But at some point, it's all of a sudden, well, you decide what you want to do. Is that what causes exactly. a lot of this uncertainty? Absolutely. We don't train people for life, really. We train people for academia and maybe some jobs. But for the most part, Mm -hmm. we are sending people up a ladder that then has a very stark and surprising ending. Everyone knows they're going to graduate. But I think most people don't realize how unprepared they are to really genuinely find their own life versus checking those boxes and climbing that ladder. Um, and also often just economically, we're, we're very rarely training people properly for, for the economy that they're entering. Uh, so it causes a, a lot of disorientation and confusion for people. And Sierra, what do you think when you hear um, people use this term quarter life crisis or, or when you think about you know, what folks in their 20s and 30s are going through right now, what comes to mind for you? Well, I'm currently 27, so I'm kind of in the middle of <laughs> that range. Um, so I take it pretty personally in that I feel like I've went through a quarter life crisis. And I also think that it is a continual thing. So it's not one event. It's several events throughout this time period. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a lack of, um, there's a lack of stability and or a lack of purpose. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard on the psyche. Now, uh, Sierra, I've interviewed you before. I know you're in law school right now. Uh, Tell me what was going on and what you describe as your quarter-life crisis. What was making you unhappy? Yeah, well, I have a long history of mental um, health concerns that I'm very vocal about. And I was able to get into recovery from those in April 2019. And around then is when I started realizing that I wanted something more, but I just didn't know how to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so finally finding the self-efficacy to take control and make big dreams was scary. The prospect of success was scary because I didn't know what it looked like. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I went back and got my degree um, in psychology and started applying to law schools. And right there, like applying to law schools is what um, kind of felt like the biggest crisis because it ended up having a lot of questions about whether or not I was good enough to do it. There was imposter syndrome. What if I got denied? I ultimately did get in, but once I started uh, law school, it opened up a whole nother range of doors mm-hmm. uh, where now... I don't know what I'm going to do precisely once I graduate. And I see a lot of my peers, especially the ones who went from um, high school to undergrad to law school, see a lot of them at the end of their law school journey going through this phase. 
And part of it is, uh, or also what makes it hard too, is you have uh, folks like me in their fifties or sixties. What do you What are you doing, Sierra? What are you doing next? Then what happens, Sierra? What are you doing, Sierra? You know, is is that part of it? Is that there's a lack of understanding um, or some insensitivity, and people don't realize it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's the the way we communicate about next steps and these pillars in life can get really overwhelming. Um, we have the onslaught of like social media telling you what you should do. Or um, an example is I am uh, getting married in January, but there's all sorts of different things coming at me being like, what are you going to do for the wedding? How much are you going to spend? Um, and so it took me years to even set a date because of that. Mm-hmm. Additionally, I won't be able to buy a house for a very long time. Um, and so not being able to hit those pillars of like getting married, having a house, having a career. And that also, since the discussion often also is like, well, when are you going to have kids then? <laughs> it just doesn't um, end, right? It, it feels never like, ends. It feels like it doesn't end. Um, um, Sarah, uh, thank you for sharing all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Satya, a lot there uh, that Sarah shared. Is this what we're talking about? I mean, she just said, uh, I wanted something more, but didn't know how to get there. Is that kind yeah, of... It's, it's exactly, it. yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sierra's living it right now and and I lived it. And, and this this is the core of, of what... I'm often talking about is is just we we are again kind of encouraging people to step through what I call stability goals. You know, we ask people to to graduate, to get a job, to buy a house, to find a partner, to have mm-hmm. babies, you know, maybe you get a dog. Like there's all these very specific goals that are following a kind of capitalist heteronormative story that just actually doesn't fit for huge numbers of people, but it's also not what we've been prepared for through school. Mm -hmm. So what ends up happening is people have mental health crises or they have severe economic crises. And the, that would be hard enough. But the problem, as you point out, is that then when people are interacting in society, there is so much disdain for young adults, so much mockery pointed at young adults that people can be genuinely suffering from, mm. from things that they were set up improperly for, but they're looked down on as though they're all just privileged whiners. And, and it, it's part mm-hmm. of this because uh, the older generations, like they went through all these goals and achieved them. So now they put it upon the next generation to do the same. Well, I think there's a couple of things. One, I do think hazing is is kind of a standard part of toxic culture. I mean, we really perpetuate this idea of, well, I survived it. I figured it out. You should, too. Stop complaining. We, we can tend to forget how hard things were mm-hmm. for us and then bury that and then expect it to be easier for other people or just get over it. But what's also true is that things have genuinely changed. It is absolutely harder to buy a house now than it was 50 years ago. It is absolutely harder to pay off your college loans if you even had to get college loans than it was 50 years ago. There's absolutely no question about that shift in economics. Um, But what's also happening is climate change, you know, and a variety of collective crises that that Mm -hmm. are hard for anyone, let alone folks who don't have deep roots of stability and meaning in their lives. Um, I want to take some phone calls as we talk about this. We're, we're talking about what is known as the quarter life 
crisis. Uh, are you a person in your 20s or 30s going through going through this or have you been through it? What changes would you like to make or how would you like to build the life you want? Uh, and if you've experienced a midlife crisis or a quarter life crisis, how did you get through this period of intense soul searching? Because we want to talk about some solutions as well. What will make it easier? Call us at 651 651- Two two seven six thousand or eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight. As I talk with two guests, uh, let's go to the phone lines in White Bear Lake. Kyle is on the line. Good morning, Kyle. Hello. Hi. What's going on with you? Uh, yeah, so I'm thirty three, and um, I sort of had a quarter life crisis, I guess. Um, so I got my bachelor's and master's in education, and I made a decision to leave uh, teaching middle school. It's not that I didn't enjoy teaching, but it was just sort of robbing me of my personal life, I guess. And I felt like I had to give up a lot of myself, um, you know, to do what's best for the kids. Mm -hmm. So I sort of had, I went through a depression and got help for that, which was nice, and realized I sort of needed to make a big shift. So I ended up leaving teaching, uh, and I worked retail just to cool off for kind of a year or two. Um, And now I um, I do landscaping work, which I really enjoy. And I've been doing that for a few years now. Um, So just my personal and work life is a lot more balanced now. Um, And I feel like I kind of came out on the other end a lot better. But it took a lot of courage to sort of leave, you know, teaching after doing that for a few years and having this education. I'm still paying the student loans for that education. I was going to ask you, Kyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got a master's degree, so you have uh, uh, loans to pay back. Yeah, definitely. So it was like... You know, do I want to leave this profession after investing all this, you know, seven years and a lot of money into it? Um, And I make more now than I did when I taught. uh, So that sort of helps. But um, I really enjoyed teaching. So I I didn't really want to leave. But just because of the circumstances around it, um, you know, my wife is a teacher. So uh, she really enjoys it. And she's in a place you know, where you can have work balance, but that's not the situation in all places, at least in terms yeah. of teaching. And Kyle, did it feel sort of like a tug of war because you were, you, were, you, were you were trying to follow the path, but something in you was just not happy. So was that sort of describe what was going on as, as well, what you were feeling? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I felt like, you know, you're sort of on a career tra- trajectory starting in, in high school, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then my bachelor's was in education and my master's. So I had all this time and energy spent it's like, am I really going to ditch out on, you know, like a decade, a decade of work to start mm-hmm. from scratch and start anew? Um, and and, and Kyle, I'm really glad I did. Were you thinking, what will people say? What is my family going to say when I tell them I want to quit this? Yeah, I mean, my wife was really supportive because she kind of knew what was going on. Um, I think a lot of my colleagues and people that I got to know uh, within teaching were really surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't really expect that, you know, I would... I was having a lot of trouble and issues, mm-hmm. um, like personally. So in some ways, they they it kind of came out of left field for them because I felt like I did a pretty good job um, when I did teach. So they were pretty surprised, and I had a lot of older mentors too that, um, you know, they were supportive of me leaving, but really disappointed to see me leave. All right, Kyle, thank you for sharing that with us. That's Kyle in White Bear Lake. Uh, Satya, what do you hear in his story? Well, I love the use of his word courage, because Mm -hmm. I think that Kyle really is a model in a certain respect of of what it takes to face this down when there is that tug of war internally. This is Kyle is somebody I might call a stability type. In my book, I talk about two types of quarter lifers, stability types and meaning types. And it's a broad spectrum. But stability types tend to 
check the boxes, they get their master's degree, they, they go forward and do sort of what is expected on some level or another. But they often then get to the end of that and realize they haven't really asked that deeper question of what they want or who they are, or that something isn't fitting. And for Kyle, he faced that and he completely pivoted and went to landscaping where it sounds like he's not only feeling much better in his body and in his life, but he's making more money. And that's so powerful. It's such a powerful uh, story for, for what is possible after this deep crisis. And tell me more about, um, you, you painted the picture of stability. What about meaning? Because we, we hear, I hear this, this from a lot of young people who are my friends. Uh, they want more meaning out of the work that they do. Absolutely. So, so the goals that I, I, I talk about in my book, Quarter Life, the book is called Quarter Life. And the core of it is really an understanding that that while we're raising people towards acquisitional goals of degrees and jobs and marriage and houses, the real work is psychological and it's internal and that our goals ultimately are both stability and meaning. Meaning is that sense of purpose. It's our values. It's, it's extremely individual. It's not something that is just found through adhering to a political party or a religious organization. It's very specific to our individual self. We all have deep nuances of who we are. And spending time, even though, again, culture doesn't really encourage this of people, we call it narcissism or navel gazing, but we all have to find out where we are in this world, how we're located and how our sense of meaning internally is, is going to be manifested. That takes a lot of soul searching. Mm. And Sierra, what do you think about what Kyle said, that it took courage for him, that he, he knew that like this is not the path that's making me happy, but it's going to take some courage to get off of it. Brene Brown's quote of there is no courage without vulnerability immediately popped in my head because it sounds like there were a lot of moments where he could have just stuck on the route he was on that was making him like not pleased with what was happening. But instead, he had to be vulnerable to make this really big change and go through this upheaval in his life in order to get out on the other side in a much better place. And Sierra, you know, I, I mentioned that you've led these the peer support group discussions. How valuable is it just for folks to know you're not alone, that other people are having these same thoughts and feelings as well? I think that's the entire point of why I do it. Um, that's why I come on shows like this and I speak very openly about my own story is because I think we all connect through stories and see the parts of ourselves within those. Um, and so with that, even Nami just released a new book called You Are Not Alone. Um, and yeah, that's mm -hmm. something that I find really helpful is just talking about it, whether it's in a formal um, support group setting or just with friends over coffee. Let's take some phone calls from listeners as we talk about what life is like right now if you're in your 20s or early 30s and going through a quarter life crisis, uh, feeling um, discontent, feeling uh, isolated, lost, having anxiety. What changes would you like to make in your life? And, and how would you like to build the life that you want? If you have experienced a, a quarter life crisis, or maybe you've had a midlife crisis, and you learned something and want to share it, give us a call at 651 Two two seven six thousand or eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight in Woodbury. Ashley's on the phone. Good morning, Ashley, and thank you for calling. Good morning. Hi. What did you want to talk about? Um, I'm thirty two years old, and my husband and I moved from New York City to Woodbury in twenty twenty. 
why mm. you probably might guess. Mm-hmm. Um, we have two children, four years old and two months old now. Mm. And I just wanted to say that I think a big part of the problem is a lack of community. Mm-hmm. Isolation? Um, isolation, for sure. So I feel like they're just, everything, everything went virtual and then a lot of things seem to stay virtual. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've noticed there's a lot of um, like support for people that are down or like struggling with certain things, which is great, but there isn't really a lot of a, a good outlet to share your happiness with others, if you know what I mean. Like, mm-hmm. um, I feel like I, we don't have what our parents had, which is just like neighbors with kids that are friends with your kids and they're the same age. Everywhere I go, everyone, all the parents seem to be 10 years older than me, which is like a whole nother issue because there's a reason why people are putting off having children. Mm. And uh, also uh, being young and having, you have a toddler and a baby, uh, physically demanding, uh, but also, I mean, I remember that time it it was, you know, hard to uh, find time to be with friends. And I often felt guilty when I was with my friends. I'm like, oh, I should be home being a mom. Do, are you experiencing yeah, that too? I, so I definitely, but I feel like it's even um, amplified because I have to, I have to choose between being with my children or having friends because my friends don't have children. So mm-hmm. I feel a disconnect there. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sort of, uh, like I'm sort of playing house but I don't have anyone to do it with me. And right. I think that's unfortunate. All right, Ashley, stand on line because I want, I want you to hear from both of our guests to see what advice they have yep. for you. Um, uh, Satya, what would you say to Ashley? Well, you know, it's, this is hard. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in parenting or, um, or having young children. I mean, this is, it's a very specific piece that Ashley is sorting through in regards to that feeling of isolation. There's no question mm-hmm. people are putting off having children more these days or choosing not to have children at times. I think what she points to in regards to community is something that so many people are struggling with. And she's absolutely right to point that out. Loneliness Mm -hmm. has been identified as a national epidemic. um, And certainly COVID made that worse for many, many people. So, gosh, I mean, I, I, Ashley sounds like an incredibly competent person. She's probably tackling all the possible areas of, of how to find people and meet, meet new people, both in a new city and with kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would just wish her luck. And, and as you're talking about, know that she's not alone with and, this. And recognizing that, that loneliness is not something to dismiss, right? Right, no. Satya? It's, it's, a, it's serious. Oh, it's a serious health issue. I mean, we really understand that community uh, it positively impacts physical and, uh, of course, emotional health, but certainly physical health as well, um, and that loneliness has the opposite effect. So that feeling, again, that it's like, oh, I'm kind of just lonely. We can write these things off as sort of being no big deal, but they really are major health issues when mm-hmm. we don't have deep community and a sense of connection with others. And Sierra, do the stories like this uh, that what Ashley just shared, being a young mom, um, feeling isolated and, and trying to uh, find friends who are in similar situations. Um, is that something that you hear also in some of the discussions and, and volunteer work that you've done with, with NAMI? Yeah, I think on on the whole, the issue of lack of community and also I, I like how she um, pointed out the lack of having space to share happy things. Right, um, right. There's that's both of those are a problem that is there's no easy solution to, and I think that we see keep seeing our community engagement kind of be 
being chipped away or just being thrown into virtual worlds. We don't have as many community centers or groups meeting up at a mall. Um, there's If there's a book club, it's not like getting coffee. It's you're on Zoom. Um, and it has become a problem even within like my own life. It gets really hard mm-hmm. to connect to new people. Um, I tend to volunteer heavily because of that uh, need, but that's not really as much of a possibility for somebody with young kids. And I know that there are, um, Ashley, if you're still listening, there are many community programs. I- I'm thinking of the, the ECFE classes, those early childhood mm-hmm. and family education classes where you uh, bring parents together who are trying to learn how to parent at certain age groups. And a lot of people make friends there because they, they're dealing with the same things uh, with their young kids. So I would just encourage you to, to find maybe some, um, maybe some classes, parenting classes that would introduce you to a friend circle and you would have that in common to talk about what's going on with those babies and toddlers. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, thank you for calling. Uh, let's take another phone call. In Minneapolis, we have Sue on the line. Sue, what do you want to tell us? Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I just, you know, you mentioned the quarter-life crisis, and I'm 58 years old, and I work in book publishing. But when I was in college, I didn't even hear of the term quarter-life crisis, but I was kind of on this track from high school of being good at science and math, and everyone was going to being a doctor or an engineer, and so I found myself in the School of Engineering, and I was really proud of myself, you know, that I could do that, but at the same time, I just was struggling, and I didn't even really know, you know, like what it is that I wanted, but I just loved literature and and so, and I wanted to write. And so I, I changed majors kind of after I'd been maybe my second year and I decided to be an English major. And it felt like so scary, like your caller was saying, just that you're just, I just felt like I was like jumping off the ivory tower or something into this world, like become an English major. Like, what am I going to do? Be a waitress? You know, everyone was saying like, well, you're not going to have a job. You know, you're, 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 you're leaving this secure kind of opportunity for something that's completely unknown. And um, I was really scared, but I felt like I had the support of my roommates, but was, you know, Mm -hmm. and then I, you know, when I remember when I called my mom and I told her and I said, you know, I want to do this. And, and she said, you know, just do what makes you happy. And thankfully I didn't spend a ton of money on an education that I didn't use because I was able to make that change kind of halfway. But, um, it was really scary. And, you know, I think about it a lot because in, you know, being an older woman in the workforce, certainly I've had to remake my career a couple of times, but I've managed to stay in publishing and I really love it. And so you so have you have sympathy I, for what uh, young folks are describing today. Absolutely. And, you know, there's if you just if you kind of follow your heart and you follow what what really motivates you? Like, what makes you happy? Work has to, I feel like work, if you're going to build a happy life, you have to kind of mm-hmm. look at the inside and, and, and be motivated to get up in the morning and do that job. And um, kind of gets that back. really made the difference for yeah. me. Uh, know yourself and, and, and think about the, the courage that you're going to need to, to follow your, your gut instincts. In Richfield, we've got David on the phone. David, what did you want to share with us? Uh, first of all, thanks for this topic and this program. I mean, when the first time I heard you say quarter-life crisis, I thought, man, that's exactly mm-hmm. what I had. And it's just nice to know that I may be 
I may be crazy, but I'm not the only one. <laughs> so this is um, in your I, past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I've, I'm, you know, approaching retirement at this point, but I definitely went through that. And um, uh, your prior callers about the whole lockstep K through 12, you kind of, you know, a lot of things are just, of course, you'll do this. Of course, you'll do this. And for me, it was, of course, I'll go to college. And, and then I got there and was like, well, what do I like? What do I want to do? And I, I like one of your previous callers, I was good at math and science, so I should go into engineering. And I remember sitting in chem class watching Professor Connor make polyester right before my eyes. And I realized, I'm glad other people are fascinated in this, but it's not me. <laughs> and I had to ask myself, what, what do I like? And I, I had to ask some tough questions. And, you know, what do I want and what did I expect? And I had to write them in private because I kept saying things like, oh, I, I can't put that down. Oh, that's not nice to say that. And I had to be brutally honest with myself with what I wanted. I had a lot of great support. Uh, my mom, bless her heart, made an appointment for me to go see a doctor. And the first time they wrote down depression, it was like, okay, this has a name and I can do something about it. So counseling, absolutely. Talk to somebody. If you're in college, you know, they've got great student counseling services. Pretty much every campus has that. Um, I highly recommend that. Uh, but for me, one thing I did was I'm from a very tight family, got a lot of great support there. Um, but when I was in counseling, I remember telling my counselor, these conversations we're having are great, but I need to have them out there. And I pointed outside the window. I need to have them out in the real world with people. Mm-hmm. And so I, I picked three people. They happened to be two uncles and a, and a family friend. They were all males. And I, I privately called them my three wise men. <laughs> um, but I didn't tell them that because that, that would put a lot of pressure on you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just I just made it a point to spend time with them. And they were close enough to me that they knew me. They knew my family. They knew the dynamics. They knew who I was. But they weren't so close that if I said, I'm going to run away and join the circus, they'd go, oh, my God, you can't do that. What will the neighbors think? And it was just a really good group. Um, and like I said, I, I never told them uh, that they were my three wise men. I, I did tell one uncle as he was dying that I that I. Mm-hmm him for that. But uh, that was very helpful to me. Uh, and just, you know, for that college major thing, I, I admire folks that can look ahead, plan ahead, work hard for that long goal. I had to pick a major that was useful to me right then immediately. And so I picked psych because I wanted to learn what was going on about me. And I picked group dynamics and speech to kind of figure out how interactions with other people work. I, I basically planned my major around kind of a self-help program for myself. And not everybody can do that, but that's what I, that's what I do. So I would just recommend yeah. talk to people about stuff. David, thank you so much uh, for calling in and, and for sharing what you went through and what you learned from, from uh, sharing your struggles with others and getting help. I appreciate it. Um, uh, Satya, that for me, uh, there was a lot in his phone call, but I love the fact that um he recognized that having someone else, uh, a therapist to talk with or uh, yeah. a mentor to talk with, that that could really help him get through this. And it did. It's, oh, yeah. It's so powerful. I mean, I love hearing from callers who, who are out of this and, and know what it is to survive it and feel better on the other side. I think both his modeling of, of one, using education to really attend to his own needs. Again, we can call that narcissistic, but using college to really learn about himself is powerful. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful model. Um, having therapy, really finding a therapist who can deeply listen to you and help you to understand yourself um, and hear yourself is so powerful. And finding mentors in the world, whether or not they know it is incredible. You know, we really, we, we kind of silo people into age groups in culture. We put kindergartners with kindergartners, you know, and uh, college students with college students. 
But multi-generational interaction is so powerful and really having older people in your life with whom you could be in deep relationship without paternalism or looking down on you or sort of encouraging you to go in one direction or, or another is just really a powerful part of surviving this time. And Sierra, do you have conversations with people about um, being kind to themselves? Because I, I think if I look at my own story, my own journey in my 20s, I was not nice to myself. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It comes down to this like perseverance that you like just have to hold on tight and keep moving forward. And in doing so, recognize that you're not going to be perfect. You're going to make mistakes and the harsher you are on yourself internally, it the harder it is to get through this. Um, there's oh, sometimes things like loving kindness meditations would be recommended um, because what I've seen is a lot of people are very, very hard on themselves, including myself, mm-hmm. um, where the self-talk within us becomes toxic and for some people with depression it becomes very very dangerous and so getting the external support from a professional um is really important and as david was mentioning having and seeking out support systems is a really important tool here uh, because sometimes we don't know the options if we haven't seen other people modeling them and what are the options um I mean, some people are comfortable talking with a therapist, some are not. So is it another option, like a a group session where you talk? Or is it uh, finding someone who you would just say, hey, can you be my mentor? What would you suggest, Sierra? Uh, I would suggest both. I think like, for example, NAMI Minnesota has support groups. Um, They're free to anyone who is um, living with a mental health diagnosis. And then they also have um, support groups for family and friends of those living mm-hmm. with a mental health um, disabilities. Mm-hmm. Within all of that, too, though, we have friends, mentors, um, professionals within fields you might be curious about, churches, um, other religious areas. There's a lot of places where you can go and maybe not necessarily share every part of what you're dealing with right away, but slowly build up to a place where you're comfortable telling people, hey, maybe I'm not in the right major or I'm really insecure about housing right now. I need some extra help with my relationships Um, because the thing we all have in common is that we're just trying to survive. And would you agree it is dangerous to keep all of this to yourself? Yes. I, or at least in my experience, absolutely. I honestly did not believe I would even get to a quarter life crisis because I didn't think I'd get to quarter life. Um, And I don't think that's a unique position, um, especially for my generation. And it's scary. Um, And so getting the help, um, but that also means recognizing that there is a medical professional shortage within the psychiatric field. It is hard to get a therapist right now. Um, It is hard to uh, finance a therapist right now as well for a lot of people. And so these barriers are making it even harder to persevere through this really heavy part of life. 
And Sierra, while we're talking about this, how do people reach out to NAMI Minnesota? Where do we get information on these services? NAMIMN.org has a a wide variety of supports, including support groups, classes. You can become a volunteer um, and work on building that community. There's also mental health libraries to learn more about certain mental health Mm -hmm. um, disorders. And there is a way to email them if you or call if you are looking for something specific. And again, uh, NAMI, N-A-M-I-M-N dot org. Correct. Okay. And again, NAMI stands for National Alliance on Mental Illness. Back to the phone lines in Minneapolis. Courtney's on the phone. Courtney, thank you for waiting. And what do you want to tell us as we talk about uh, being in your 20s and early 30s? Yeah. So I'm 31. Um, I had, I was a single mom in my twenties, uh, for most of my twenties. <clears throat> I had my daughter when I was 21. Um, and one of the most, the hardest thing I think for myself has been just when my daughter was younger, finding parents and other people who are my age that I could, you know, go and talk to if my kid was, you know, acting weird or off the wall, or I was having, you know, issues with finding a babysitter or something, there was you know, my parents, my grandparents had a sense of community and a community they could go to to get help, whether it's advice or, you know, dropping the kids off for a couple hours. Um, And combining that with, you know, trying to get a college degree. um, I'm married now, which is very helpful and it's great and I'm happy. But for a long time, it was just really isolating, not only being a millennial and struggling with trying to pay rent and bills and what I want to do. But on top of that, I'm taking care of this tiny human. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to provide her with this, you know, life and teach her what it is. But it's hard to do that when you're so, you feel so isolated and alone because everybody else is at a completely different point in their life. And everybody else is at a point in their life that, you know, other generations didn't really even experience, it seems Mm -hmm. like. It's it's a different time now. Thank you, yeah. Courtney. Uh, I'm I'm wishing you well. In, in Brooklyn Center, Carrie is on the line. Carrie, what do you want to tell us? Hey there. Hi. Um, I graduated in 2002, right after September 11th. Right, good mm-hmm. time. Um, and I grew up with two parents. One that says you got to get a 401k, and the other one that says follow your dreams. Right. <laughs> um, and stability so and, and meaning. So two different philosophies. Yeah, there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but when you graduate into a crisis and you see what we've been through over the past, you know, years, um, at 26, I lost my job, uh, lost my boyfriend, had to move home with my parents. I am not the type of person. I have ADHD and persistent depressive disorder. So regular schooling is very hard for me. So college is very hard and I didn't complete it. Um, but I did find a job um, through pressure of friends, like get a job, move to the city, working for a large corporation in customer service. And I was really blessed, and I didn't know it at the time, because this company had like a really enriched um, like pathway to your next job. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you did testing about your personality and what your strengths and weaknesses are and continuing education within the company. And that really helped me because I needed a pathway that wasn't the same as most people, right? Because I learned differently. I learned through association and through things that make sense right where I am. Um, That really helped. But I thought that was the end, right? But it's not 
because I'm 38 now and I have a four-year-old that was born right before the pandemic and I'm without a job, which I lost due to my mental health and my ADHD and this quarter-life crisis. It, I feel like life is just a continuum of crises and you mm-hmm. find ways to manage that throughout therapy, friends, support, family, uh, going to the library, meeting a random mom the other day, like makes you happy and you find like people that you can connect with. Carrie, thank you. Uh, that's Carrie in Brooklyn Center uh, in her 30s now, uh, reflecting on what life was like in her 20s. Um, Satya, as we uh, enter the final minutes of the show, um, what, again, are, are some tools? I mean, what have you found that has been successful for the many people that you've interviewed and, and, and folks that you've talked with in therapy? Well, I want to just say to the last caller that I, I think what she really is speaking to is the large picture here, which is life is a journey. Mm-hmm. And that, that can sound very corny, right? But but it is true that we are all continuously changing and encountering new challenges and that culture in general is not very psychologically minded. And so to draw that attention back to ourselves and to what we need is very powerful. So the tips and tools, you know, I write about stuff in my book, um, but generally speaking, the larger picture is this kind of kindness towards ourselves and and honoring that quarter life is very difficult um, economically, socially, and and personally, and that we can get through it with self-knowledge and good conversations and good therapy often. And Sierra, uh, a lot of us are thinking about next week, some family gatherings for Thanksgiving. Uh, give us some advice, uh, folks who want to be supportive of, of the young adults in our lives who we care about. Uh, tell us what we should and should not do, please. Yeah. I think we should stay curious and open-minded about the concerns that the younger people in our lives are bringing up. I think that there is a sometimes this need to fix um, somebody who's going through a difficult time. That's often not the case that can happen. Um, one tool that my family uses is if I'm talking about something that's really hard for me, they'll ask me if I'm venting or if I'm looking for resources. And so asking for that boundary during the conversations can be helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, Or just keeping it to lighter conversations um, until it comes to a point where the young person is leading and wants to be open. Because prying Mm -hmm. into these things, whether it's uh, financial insecurities or being scared about politics or climate, sometimes you bring those things up. And if somebody has an opposing view, mm-hmm. it can feel very belittling. Mm-hmm. Well, I have uh, appreciated uh, all of the insight and advice that our guests have brought, as well as uh, the stories that our listeners shared this hour. Um, thank you to everyone. Uh, we've been talking with Satya doyle Bayak, a psychotherapist and the author of the book Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood, and Sierra Grande here in Minnesota, a volunteer with NAMI who speaks publicly on mental health. This conversation today was produced by Matt Alvarez. Be safe, everyone, and I'll talk to you tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.